0: As I went out one evening, by a day with discontent, I bumped straight into Old Tom Payne as running down the road he went. He said, "I can't stop right now, child. King George is after me. He'd have a rope around my throat and hang me on a liberty." Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers 100 pages at a time using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be finishing up with Thomas Paine, my series on Thomas Paine. Um, so I urge you to go back and look at the previous seven episodes where I go through uh, most of his political writings and the first half of Age of Reason. And this episode is just to clean up some final points about the Age of Reason. Um now, Age of Reason was written in two parts. The first part was written pretty much when Payne was in jail in France, uh, being basically at risk of his life, actually. Uh, he didn't have a Bible. He wrote it essentially from the top of his head. It's more general. It, it's probably all you really need. Um, if you want to read the second half of the Age of Reason, uh, you probably will have more interest in the details of the Bible because what he does is he goes through... Pretty much book by book, starting with the the books of Moses, Genesis and the Moses story then through the histories to the prophecies and then to the New Testament. So he goes through basically all the books of the Bible and asks questions about them. Um, he's not essentially disrespectful. I mean, well, Payne wasn't the, the most polite person when he wrote, but he's not like vicious, but he does show that these texts are all flawed um, and there's not really that much more to say about it Um, I don't want to make this too short of an episode though but I I did kind of write down jot down a few of the ways in which he interrogates these these sources and I think that's the most important thing is he starts out saying I'm gonna read these texts like any other historical document I'm gonna read it like I would read Thucydides or Herodotus you know and I'm going to put it up to the same level of analysis and critique so if there's bad history in the Bible you know, I'm going to judge that by how I judge other examples of bad history. You know, is it well-sourced? Are there confirming documents? are there for, Is there firsthand testimony? If the story is immoral or illogical, I'm going to judge that based on the standards. I'll judge any other work. The Bible doesn't get a pass because, you know, it's, it's claimed to be the word of God by, by preachers. So um, that's his method, um, and that's what he does. And he spends a couple pages pretty much in every book of the Bible. So if you want to have ammunition to attack believers, you can find it here. Um, and I'm just struck again, as I said this in the last episode, how little the arguments have really had to evolve. Yeah, we have Darwin now and we have better explanations for the origin of life and, and we've moved away from this resort to deism that pain embraces. But you know a lot of the critiques of the Bible you find in the new atheist literature today is, is pretty much drawn right from here and Payne himself is drawing from enlightenment thinkers he's not the original thinker on this Um, now one reason the second part of the age of reason comes out is because he did feel after kind of rushing the first part and writing it without a bible he wanted to actually be a little bit more detailed so he he definitely wrote this part with a bible in hand that he could compare to and and draw from quotes he quotes directly he He's able to go kind of more line by line through through the Bible. So what are his criticisms? Well, there's, there's a handful. There's four or five different criticisms he'll level at different books, and he does it at, at different times. And some books get several of these criticisms. Um, the first is the moral vileness of, of the Old Testament. Um, and anyone who's read this knows there's slavery, there's rape, there's murder, genocide. There's all kinds of really horrible... Things happen often in the name of God. There's, you know, God sometimes it's God himself ordering his followers to do this or that. Sometimes it's just the believers, the so-called good guys, doing horrible things. So it's just, just kind of vileness is pouring from the text, and, and pain can't help but be disgusted by what he reads. Here's what he says about it. Um, Having now shown that every book in the Bible from Genesis to Judges is without authenticity, I come to the book of Ruth. An idle, bundling story, foolishly told, nobody knows by whom, about a strolling country girl creeping slithely to bed of her, to the bed of her cousin Boaz. Pretty stuff indeed to be called the word of God. Is it, ho- it is, however, one of the best books in the Bible, for it is free from murder and raping. Right, so he's especially disgusted by the early books of the Bible for just their lack of any moral vision or moral, moral center. another criticism he has and he really lays this out in the in the new testament because in the new testament obviously you have the four gospels which all are supposed to report on the same the life of the same person but they have such different varying accounts the genealogy of jesus is different in the different accounts what happens at his execution fairy the the details of his resurrection are different so all these contradictions are there and that's another criticism he makes he has some of this when he looks at the Old Testament but he really saves his, his discussion of contradictions for his analysis of the New Testament so here's a brief example of this on page 800 uh, in the Library of America version quote the book of Matthew states that when Christ was put on the sepulcher the Jews applied to Pilate for a watch or the guard to be placed over the sepulchre to prevent the body from being stolen by the disciples, and that in consequence of this request, the sepulchre was made sure sealing the stone. That covered the mouth and setting a watch. But the other books say nothing about this application, nor about the sealing, nor the guard, nor the watch, and according to their accounts, there were none. Matthew, however, follows this up with part of the story of the guard or the watch with the second part that I shall notice in the conclusion as it serves to detect the fallacy of these books. Right. So it's just the, the big difference between these accounts on fundamental plot points um, disrupts him. He does at one point say, though, if they were all saying exactly the same thing, if all accounts were the same, that'd be also evidence of, of probably some suspicious forgery going on. So there's something maybe authentic here in that you have different people trying to get at a truth. But they're so radically different. I mean, they're, they just diverge so much that it's suspicious. Um. Now, another way he attacks these books, and he does this throughout both the, I mean, he focuses on the New Testament again on this, but he does it a lot in the early part too. and, And that is just that it's bad history, right? We don't have confirming sources. We don't have other texts that really say what happens. We have things happening when they shouldn't, events that apparently are made up. We have authors are unclear. We don't know who it is. Like if you just find a book lying around in the archive somewhere it might be interesting but if you can't put an author to it you can't put a date to it you can't be precise about any of that you have to have some skepticism when you use it you know it doesn't mean like it's it's irrelevant as a source but it's you know you can't take what you read in their truth right it might just been some guys you know notes about what he you know what he thinks about something or what he did in a day that's not in self-good history so um and he, he makes his argument throughout that there's just this kind of shallowness of the historical, uh, as historical sources, right? Um, part of this is the lack of eyewitness testimony, which really bothers him. Quote, first, the writers cannot have been eyewitnesses and eyewitnesses of the matter they relate, or they would have related them without these contradictions. And consequently, that the books had not been written by these persons called apostles, who are supposed to have been witnesses of the kind. If four men are eyewitnesses and ear witnesses to a scene, they will, without any concert between them, agree to the time and place when and where the scene happened. Their individual knowledge of the thing, each one knowing it for themselves, renders concert totally unnecessary. The one that the one will not say that he was on a mountain in the country and the other say it was a house in the town. That one will not say that it was sunrise and the other will say it was dark, for in whatever place it was and whatever time it was, they know it equally alike, end quote. So, again, this goes back to this point that you're, you wouldn't expect exact conformity on all things. You are going to get different perspectives and points of view. But that's not the issue here. The issue here is just, you know, someone saying this day and someone else saying it's night. Right. Those are such radically different um, times that really they're not trustworthy eyewitnesses if they vary that much. He also criticizes, especially the New Testament, for being not original. Um, so on the one hand, you have these things not being confirmed. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem that these things that happen are unique to Jesus Christ himself. And, and this kind of gets to where contemporary mythicist thinking is. You know, the people who say that Jesus is just kind of a copy, a plagiarism of like mystery religions. Um, there, there are writers who kind of look at it that way. Um, Payne pre-shadows that a little bit here. Um, Quote, the story of Jesus Christ appearing after he was dead is the story of an apparition, such as timely imagination can always create in vision and credulity belief. Stories of this kind have been told of the assassination of Julius Caesar not many years before, and they generally have their origin in violent deaths or an execution of innocent people. In cases of this kind, compassion lends its aid and benevolently stretches the story. The story of the appearance of Jesus Christ is told with that strange mixture of the natural and the impossible that distinguishes legendary tale from fact. And then he goes on and he compares it to Elijah and how there's parallels between what what happened to Jesus and what happened to Elijah. So there's not really originality here, um, which if it was the son of God coming down to die for our sins, you'd expect uh, it would be a one in a time event. But there's so many different parallels to other stories and folklore that pain is... Skeptical that this really happened, um, and so this is how he does. it. He goes through the books of the Bible, attacking it largely on these these terms. But different books will get a different kind of attack. Um, but if you want that, it's it's here in the second part of the Age of Reason. If you just want the the nutshell of it, I think you can do fine with the first half. Um, there is some a little bit more morality. I question in the first part of the book if pain does enough to give us a moral code um here he he says it comes from nature and i'm not really sure what that means or he doesn't really give any examples of that i don't know if he really fixes that here um he's more interested in saying that the bible at very least is not a good source for morality and he's pretty convincing on that Uh, you have of course all the vile stories uh, that run throughout it but he even attacks the new testament morality here um this is really right on the last few pages of the book. Loving of enemies is another dogma of feigned morality, and it has beside no meaning. It is incumbent on man and a moralist that he does not revenge an injury, and it is equally as good as a, in, in a political sense, for there's no end to retaliation or retaliate on each other and call it justice. But to love in proportion to the injury, if it could be done, would be to offer a premium for a crime. Besides, the word enemy is too vague in general to be used as a moral maxim, which ought always to be clear and defined like a proverb, end quote. So, of course, he's a revolutionary, right? He's not the kind of person who says, I'm going to love the king because he wrongs me and he wrongs the United States, right? It doesn't mean I don't necessarily hate them either, but their justice requires some addressing of the crimes that were committed. And this idea of loving your enemy is, as he says it, to pay a, a villain, or someone who wronged you, maybe not a villain, but at least someone who did something wrong with your love, right? Why, why should they get something just for being a criminal? It's, it's one thing to love an enemy after maybe making peace with them or resolving that crime or get, achieving justice. And then, oh, yeah, if you want to love your enemy, your former enemy at that point, fine. But as it's listed here, just give a blanket pardon to, to your enemies. He thinks it's immoral because it doesn't lead to justice. So, yeah, we still don't get, I guess, like an alternative moral code, which, in my view, should really be rooted in our social relations. And I think Paine knows this. He sees certainly the political system as coming out of our social relations. He doesn't buy this idea of an abstract contract with a government, like in a Hobbesian or even a Lockean sense. He, he's more Rousseau-ian in this in this that he sees the social contract as between the members of society. So I guess his moral system would come out of that as well. Um, His final defenses of deism in the the last pages of the book are really well written and and nice. Um, Where it comes down to when you actually see the breath and the beauty and the deepness and the expanse of the universe, you don't need the Bible to have this relationship with the divine. Revelation through creation is good enough and beautiful enough. Quote, could a man be placed in a situation and endowed with power of vision, to behold at one view and to contemplate deliberately the structure of the universe, to mark the movements of the several planets, the cause of their varying appearances, the unerring order in which they revolve, even to the remotest comet, their connection and dependence on each other, and to know the system of laws established by the Creator that governs and regulates the whole, he would then conceive far beyond what any church theology can teach him, the power, the wisdom, the vastness, and the munificence of the Creator. He would then see that all the knowledge man has of science and that all the mechanical arts by which he renders his situation comfortable here are derived from that source. His mind exults at the scene and convinced by the fact would increase in gratitude as it increased in knowledge. His religion or his worship would become united with his improvement as a man and any employment he followed that has connection with this principle of the creation as everything of agriculture, of science, and of the mechanical arts has would teach him more of God and of the gratitude he owes to him than any theological christian sermon he has hears he hears great objects inspire great thoughts great munificence excites great gratitude but the groveling tales and doctrines of the bible and testament are fit only to excite contempt and so it's a really nice conclusion to his argument just nature and creation and each other is a better source for our faith than than old dusty books and weird foreign languages um, so that does it for the age of reason and it does it for for Thomas Paine um, I really enjoyed kind of getting into nonfiction for a while I've been really looking at fiction throughout this whole podcast but if we're going to go through American writers uh, fairly systematically it's going to require dealing with um, more writers I don't know when I'm going to come back though to a, a founder because you know I just might need a break from them but um, What I will do is is kind of go back to a time period I really like reading about, which is the earlier 20th century, and I'll be looking at uh, some of the early novels of John Steinbeck. So I'll have a short series on Steinbeck, seven, eight, nine episodes, where we'll look at um, uh, To a God Unknown, Pastures of Heaven, In Dubious Battle, Tortilla Flats, and Of Mice and Men. So we'll look at those five works, probably over, um, probably closer to eight episodes. But that's what will be coming up, so um, I hope you'll join me in that. Um, But thanks for listening to this series on Thomas Paine, and thanks for listening to this podcast. Uh, If you have any comments, you can leave them on the site, or uh, you can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in 100 pages, uh, and we'll be somewhere completely different. We'll be in um, California with John Steinbeck. Thanks will dance the to Tompaine's bones, dance the to Tompaine's bones. Now dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tompaine's bones. Dance the to Tompaine's bones, dance the to Tompaine's bones. Now dance in the oldest boots I own to the rhythm of Tompaine's bones. I only talked about freedom.